0: Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come, Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, Talkingscripture.org.
1: Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be covering 2 Corinthians chapters 8 through 13. And before we really get into chapters 8 through 13, I want to talk about some of the things going on at the end of chapter 7. If you go back to chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about problems in Macedonia. He says in verse 5 We were come into Macedonia and our flesh had no rest. We were troubled on every side, without were fightings within were fears. So if you want to know what the problems are that Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 7 in Macedonia, all you have to do is open up the book of Acts and read the 16th and 17th chapter, and that will really flesh out the details of Paul's strugglings. In Macedonia, there were a couple big cities there that Paul discusses, and one is Philippi and one is Thessalonica. And in the 16th chapter of Acts, we read that Paul is beaten and he's thrown into prison. And the problems that he has in Macedonia follow him continually as he travels through this area until he gets to Athens in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. And to really understand this, you need to see a map of where Macedonia was in relationship to Greece. And we put that in the show notes. And so I'm just acknowledging that chapter 8 and 9 can be kind of difficult to wade through and I'm going to cover a couple details to kind of give a background to what's going on in here so that we can get our bearings. Paul's request to the Corinthian saints in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 revolve around a collection he is organizing for the people suffering in Jerusalem because of the famine. Many scholars refer to this as the Jerusalem Donation. This collection was desperately needed to help the hungry saints in Jerusalem survive the famine that was happening at the time. And he is drawing inspiration from the people in Macedonia, and they pledged a certain amount of money to help, and he's asking the saints in Corinth to do the same. And he reminds the people in Corinth that they already committed that they would give money. I remember reading a book one time about how to motivate people, and one of the ways Managers try to motivate people is maybe sometimes they'll yell at their employees or they'll say things like, You're not doing enough. And then there's another example in this book I read where one manager just came down and he took a piece of chalk and he there was the night shift and the day shift and he wrote a number on the board for the shift that just got off. And then he walked away. And the shift that was just coming on saw that number, and with just that number written on the board, everybody on the shift knew. That's the number we've got to beat. We've got to beat that number. The previous shift hit that number, and it motivated them to work hard. And I think that idea is kind of the backbone to these two chapters in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. What we have is Paul went to the saints in Macedonia, and he's asking them to give a donation to help the saints that are suffering because of the famine that's in Jerusalem. And they pledged a certain amount of money to help,
0: and he's asking the saints in Corinth to do the same. Now, before we jump into the details of that, let's get to the bigger doctrine, because Paul is going to pull on all the threads that Jesus taught back in his Last Supper, and one of those themes is love of God, love of man. Now, somewhere in all of their interactions, I'm guessing Paul became acquainted with everything that Jesus did in the Last Supper, when the Son of God himself, in his defining moment of triumph grabbed a basin and a towel, and washed their feet. And so I love what Paul does here at the very beginning of chapter 8. He lays down the doctrine. He says in verse 4 that we all must take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. But then verse 5, the reason for that is because we first must give our own selves to the Lord. So before he ever talks about, boy, the the saints in Jerusalem are struggling and they need financial help, he reminds them that the first and great commandment is to love God. The second great commandment is to love each other, and they are forever connected. If we love God, the very best and greatest manifestation of that is both to keep his commandments and to serve those whom he loves. And Paul lays that out before any of the details of, okay, now here's how specifically I'm asking you to do that. That is the big picture, Bryce. I really think
1: if we understand the underlying bedrock to these two chapters, I think sometimes we can get bogged down in the details. I know, for example, I do. As I read chapters eight and nine, some of this stuff can be difficult to understand, especially in the way Paul writes it. You see, Nowhere that I found in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 does Paul say, hey, you guys, there's a famine in Jerusalem and they need bread. I don't see that anywhere in these chapters. Nowhere in these chapters does he say, hey, I'm doing a food drive. It would really be awesome if you guys could help me out. Now, think about this. There is not a big food truck that Paul can load up. So what Paul really needs is money so that he can transport it to the saints in Jerusalem that are suffering so much from this famine. And we think from our reading and through historical sources that the saints in Corinth, some of them are doing pretty good. They have an abundance. And if we kind of pull this thread a little bit, we see that the Jerusalem donation and the collection that Paul is getting is really woven throughout many of the texts of the New Testament. But we kind of have to know what's going on to see it. If we don't know that it's happening, we can kind of miss it. And so I'm going to reference a few passages that really kind of help explain this. Go to Acts chapter 21. Look in verse 17. This is when Paul comes to Jerusalem. We read in Acts 21, 17, when we were come to Jerusalem the brethren received us gladly and the day following Paul went in with us unto James remember James is the bishop in Jerusalem he was known for his piety being super righteous and he was Jesus's half brother so we have Paul coming into James and then in verse 19 we read When he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. Many scholars read these verses in Acts 21 as Paul, delivering the Jerusalem donation, the collection, the money that he's been gathering for years, From the Gentiles that are out there in the different places and many of the Jews, he's gathering this and he's delivering it to the leadership in Jerusalem. After this, go to Acts 24. Look in verse 17. This is another just brief reference, but it helps us understand that this is part of the Jerusalem donation collection that's going on. Look in verse 17 in chapter 24. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation, And offerings. This is Paul acknowledging that he's bringing the Jerusalem donation to his nation. And so this is one of those little breadcrumbs that helps us understand it. Another one is in the end of Romans. If you go to Romans 15, uh, I'm going to read a little bit from verses 14 through 31. This is what we read. And I myself am persuaded of you, my brethren, that you're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. But now I go to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. We're back to Bryce talking about how we need to take care of people. For it has pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia. Now remember, Corinth is in Achaia, that's Greece. Macedonia is where Thessalonica and Philippi are. For it has pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. Now we see this idea again in 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 through 4. He talks about this and he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatea, even so do you. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them I will send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. There's other references, but I think that kind of gives us the gist of it. One of the things we need to understand is that when Paul it goes back to Jerusalem, he knows that when he brings this donation, the odds of him getting arrested by the authorities that want to kill him is very likely. And so I believe that Paul was literally willing to lay down his life to help these saints that are in this destitute condition. I really do believe that was his heart. I think sometimes, and maybe you're this way, I know I've met people like this sometimes, when they believe in something so much and they're so excited about it, sometimes their excitement or their anxiety or whatever you want to call it can kind of get in the way of their message, and sometimes they can be a little bit tough to be around. And my take on Paul is I think Paul was like that. I think Paul has many examples as we read some of his writing and as we read kind of how he is approaching people. Sometimes he can be a little bit, what's the word, caustic? Uh, What's (laughs) Overzealous. Overzealous, yeah. I think Paul could be a little bit overzealous, but I also, on the other hand, I kind of understand it. So a big deal throughout his ministry, and it's going to be kind of sprinkled throughout some of the letters that we've talked about, and we see it here in in the 8th and ninth chapter of Uh, second Corinthians, I think one of the big things we see here is how important this was to him to take care of the saints. And, uh, you know, Bryce and I were talking about this uh, between conferences. When we watch conference, one of the things that really strikes me is here in Salt Lake City, we have a local newscaster. Her name is Carol Makita. She will follow the brethren around as the members of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will go about to the world, and one of the things that she covers are the ways that they try to give humanitarian aid to people that are suffering.
0: And it's not just to members, is it, Bryce? No, it's everyone. It's a beautiful little insight into the disciple of Christ trying to love Heavenly Father's children and they are compelled to do good and bring goodness throughout the whole world It's just a, it's an incredible way of looking at our leaders. I remember
1: in one instance, um, Elder Christofferson was giving a donation to a kitchen, uh, a kitchen that helped people that were in need, and it was run by a Catholic organization, and it was a substantial contribution, and the woman who was running the kitchen was just emotional and so grateful to the Quorum of the Twelve and the generosity of the saints of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I remember watching that, and I thought, I am so grateful that the brethren are ambassadors. You know, obviously they're in charge of missionary work and their job is to spread the message. But as human beings, we need to take care of each other. And that's what Jesus did. And that really is the gist of this 8th and ninth chapter. And so he really emphasizes the importance
0: of having the right attitude in chapter 8. And I love that in verse 12. He says, if there be first a willing mind. And I think, again, a total side note, Paul is addressing the difference between terrestrial giving and celestial giving. It's good to give, and it's good to take care of each other, but if we're going to do this with a bad attitude, it misses the mark of our celestial goal. Celestial people don't give because they have to. Celestial people give because they are that way. That's their nature and their disposition. They love people. They want to bless their lives. And so Paul's saying, look, the saints in Jerusalem need the donation. But we don't want to just give it grudgingly. He takes the opportunity to teach them about celestial giving. You know, going back to that verse 5, we have given ourselves to the Lord, and the Lord loves these people. Therefore, make the donation, but take the opportunity to do so in a celestial manner, because you love them, and you love the Lord.
1: I like that. I really think the end of verse 14 is also kind of this underlying bedrock principle. And in this verse, at the end, there's this idea that we want equality. We want somehow we want justice, we want rightness to be something that is distributed amongst all the saints. And it seems to me that the saints in Corinth are probably in a better economic position right now than some of the people that are struggling with the famine. Now, historically, the Corinthian saints had already committed to this offering before the Macedonians even did. In fact, it's been several months and he's gone to the Macedonian saints, and they've committed, but before they did, the saints in Corinth have already committed. But Paul's kind of in this pickle, because he's written these letters to the saints in Corinth. I mean, the church in Corinth is a mess. So Paul had to correct him. Some of the stuff going on in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, and some of the things we talked about last week, where that individual had repented, but there's still some people that are fighting against uh, what Paul taught. The end of 1 Corinthians 15, where there's a a subset of individuals in the church that don't believe in the resurrection. And Paul has to straighten that out. I mean, there are so many messy things going on here. And so Paul knows that they've committed to this contribution, but he also knows, hey, I've I've had to correct you guys. I've had to really use some stern language. And so I'm hopeful that you guys are going to contribute, but I don't know. And so he sends Titus to him. And Titus comes back with a verbal report saying, You know what? The saints in Corinth might not be ready just yet, but if we can encourage them, they'll probably donate. I mean, that's really the gist of chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. And so in one way, they've made the verbal assent saying, yes, we're going to contribute, but it's another thing to get the donation. And that's really what 8 and 9 is all about. And so as Bryce mentioned about having the right attitude, we see that again in chapter 9, verse 7. God loveth a cheerful giver. Before we leave these two chapters, I just want to mention one more thing. Look in verse 4 of chapter 8. Praying with us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Nowhere in these chapters does Paul say the word money, but he talks about the gift. That word is charis. That word is the word that's used for grace in the New Testament. And so one of the things Paul's doing here is he's saying, you guys in Corinth have been given charis or grace, and so we need to give to those that are in want.
0: Similar to what Jesus said when he sent the missionaries out, he says, freely ye have received, now freely give.
1: So we covered chapter 8 and 9, really the Jerusalem donation, chapters 10 and 11 is Paul Emphasizing his authority. We're back to this idea that there were people in Corinth that were trying to subvert the objectives of the apostles. And so Paul here is going to basically say, hey, listen, you guys, I do have authority and you need to listen to my authority. And he's going to do this in different ways. Some of the verses in chapter 10 and some of the verses in chapter 11 can be a little bit clunky. We put some of the translations of those difficult verses in the show notes for those of you that want to get into the details. We'll certainly give an overview of some of these verses, but not a detailed verse-by-verse breakdown. I'm going to read a different translation of chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 that will help us to kind of see it a little bit more plainly. I myself, Paul, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face-to-face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I ask that when I am present, I need not show boldness by daring to oppose those who think that we are acting according to human standards. Paul here is using rhetoric, a method of speaking to really get the saints' attention in Corinth. He's also going on the offensive. This is very pervasive in the rhetoric of the Greeks. Now in these verses, especially in verses two and three, Paul's reference to human standards probably is a response to some of the Corinthians' charges about his unreliability. If you remember, we talked about this in the last podcast where Paul made plans to come to visit them, and then the Spirit directed him to not come at that time. There probably was a little bit of grumbling in Corinth that he wasn't coming and visiting when he said he would. And so He's coming out and saying to them, I don't make my plans according to human standards. And then look what he says in verse 7. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ's, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ's, even so are we Christ's. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord has given us for edification and not for your destruction... I should not be ashamed. Now, that can be a little bit difficult to kind of get through, but I'm just going to read you my translation of part of verse 7. Here it is. If any man trusts that in his mind that he is of Christ, he must recalculate this again. In order that as he is of Christ, even so are we of Christ. This is what I see happening in verse 7 and 8. Paul's is essentially, without naming them, He's calling out some of the people that are in Corinth that are trying to subvert his authority. And he's basically saying, hey, these guys think that they are ministers of Christ, but they're not. They need to rethink this. And just so you guys know, I certainly am, and you need to listen to what I'm saying. If you look in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 10, it reads, That I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. This is Paul calling out what the others, the people that are against him, say about him. And essentially what they're saying is he's really good at writing, but he doesn't have all the rhetorical chops of a really good Greek speaker. Remember, in this time period, especially in areas of Greece, the ability to stand in front of people and deliver a really good message was considered something very valuable. Speakers that had this ability could command great audiences and had a lot of respect. And so Paul's basically calling them out and saying, hey, I still have authority, even though they say this about me, I have the authority that you need to listen to. If you're having a hard time understanding verses 12 through 15, and you want to get into the weeds and understand the details, we do render another translation in the show notes that may be useful to you. But the gist of it is this. Paul is essentially ridiculing his adversaries, and he's highlighting their foolishness and attempting to compare themselves with themselves. In Greek culture, if you are somebody of high status you would definitely promote somebody who was of a lower status, but you would never promote yourself. If you were out self-promoting, you had to do it pretty discreetly. And so what Paul is doing is he's basically saying to the saints in Corinth, hey, these people that are saying how awesome they are, you guys don't need to listen to these guys. Now, the irony is, Paul's going to do that. I mean, that—that's what's ironic. Is Paul's going to say, "Hey, don't listen to those guys," but then he's going to say, "Hey, um, you guys need to listen to me because you know what? I've been through the the gauntlet. My adversaries that are saying all this stuff—they don't—they have nothing on me."
0: Now, just as an example of how Paul's trying to deal with that, we're going to see in chapter twelve, which we'll get to in just a moment, that he talks about a man who was caught up into heaven. But clearly, he's talking about himself. And so he's kind of in that whole mode of, I'm not going to promote myself, I'm going to talk about it as if I'm it's a separate person, but I'm establishing my authority. Yeah. So how do you establish your authority without promoting yourself? That's the challenge Paul is facing, and it's really, really going to lead to some significant truths for you and I in end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12.
1: Exactly. I really think that the 11th chapter is him again blasting his opponents and... Paul even acknowledges that some of his opponents in Corinth can beat him at the game of rhetoric. I mean, look what he says in verse 5 and 6 of chapter 11. In verse 5, he says, For I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. So in, on one hand, he says, I'm right there with the, the chiefest apostles, and I think that would be Peter. But then he says in verse 6, But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge— but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. Essentially he's acknowledging that he doesn't have the best rhetorical chops. Maybe he isn't the greatest speaker to the people that lived in this Greek culture, but that's not why he's called as an apostle. Now, I think this is important. I've taught students over the years that have said things to me like, I wish that elder so-and-so talked more like elder so-and-so and they kind of compare apostles and say, well, I really like this one, but I don't really like this one. And I say, why? And they say, well, I don't like how they deliver their message. Or, I, or they'll say things like, mm, well, I, I just get kind of bored. And I say to them, you know what? They're not always called because they're the most dynamic speaker. They're called because they're apostles of Jesus Christ. They're called to represent him. And you know what? It's not all about entertainment. Sometimes the message is more important than how it's delivered. It kind of reminds me of the story that Elder Packer talked about where he said, imagine a diamond or a jewel that's in a box that's so fancy that we don't notice the gem we need to make sure that the packaging is not more important than what is inside. Now, I'm not saying packaging is not important and there's a balance there, but I think Paul's acknowledging, hey, I'm not the best speaker in chapter 11, verse 6. And I think this is important. He's calling out these false teachers and he's talking about how these False apostles, this is verse 13, are deceitful workers. And then he talks about how they are transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, these false apostles. And then he says, For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is of no great thing if his ministers can be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. So he's saying, Hey, don't listen to these guys. But then he's comparing it to the experience in the garden, and that's verse three. I think verse three of chapter 11 can be one of the most problematic verses in this week's Come Follow Me because it really does seem to denigrate Eve. It reads in the King James, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And if he that cometh, remember he's talking about his enemies in Corinth, preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which we have not accepted, you might well bear with him. Essentially, what he's saying is, don't listen to these guys. Don't listen to their other gospel. Now, remember, one of the things that these people were teaching, at least some of them, was that there was no resurrection. Teaching a Jesus without a resurrection to Paul is just madness. It doesn't make sense. Now, when it comes to this teaching about Eve... Remember, Eve is going to represent women and Adam is going to represent men. I think we just need to know that there were lots of teachings during this time of what's called the Second Temple Period about women. We have a text in Ben Sirah, which was circulated all during this time. I think Paul probably read it. It resembles the book of Proverbs in many ways, and the early Christian fathers, the Greek and Latin churches quoted from it extensively, but essentially Ben Sirah does denigrate women. I mean, Ben Sira 25 verse 24 says, with a woman, sin had a beginning, and because of her, we all die. I mean, that's a really challenging text. And I think some of the really difficult passages in the New Testament, which kind of throw the blame at Eve, I think they're channeling their inner Ben Sira. personally. I think they're channeling this this book that was circulated throughout the early church, they're all reading it, and we even read it in First Timothy. And we'll, we'll talk about this when we get to the pastorals. I don't necessarily think Paul wrote this part, but it is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We read, Adam was first formed, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. I mean, these are really rough passages. We see other passages, and we put a lot of these in the show notes. We give you some examples from the life of Adam and Eve and 2nd Esdras and 2nd Baruch. Some of these texts were common in the early church, and they took kind of this idea that Eve was the problem, that that she was the origin of evil, and it, it's really difficult. And yet we read in the book of Romans, chapter 5, 12, and 18, and we know Paul wrote this. Paul wrote a little bit of a balance to this, where Adam takes the blame for some of this stuff. We read in Romans 5, verses 12 and 18, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto the justification of life. I mean, here we have... Paul saying to the saints in Rome, hey, you guys, by Adam came death, but by Christ came the free gift of life, or this charis, this gift from God. All men can partake of life. Now, amidst all these early teachings, and there's a lot more, but just know that for the bulk of the second temple period, there seems to be a lot of blame on Eve. And remember, Eve represents women collectively. I think we just as latter-day saints just need to sit in this position and know that father lehi who was an individual who lived during the first temple period did not take that position and in second Nephi chapter 2 if you start about verse 17 and you just read to verse 25 those verses are very powerful and they're they are an alternate view on the fall and adam and eve and to me, they really give balance to these ideas. I take a lot of these verses in ben Sira and some of the stuff in Timothy uh, with a grain of salt, and I read them through the lens of the restoration. If we take the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially stuff from Lehi and some of the things going on in the Pearl Great Price, we can see with greater vision. We know that Adam fell; that men might be and men are that they might have joy. We know that Eve was actually doing something which was beneficial to humanity. Before we leave this, I just want to reference Suzanne Lundquist's work. She, she's done a lot of work that I think is worth reading, and we're, there, it's just too extensive to really discuss here in this podcast. But in the book, As Women of Faith, Talks selected from BYU Women's Conference in 1989, Suzanne Lundquist wrote an article called The Repentance of Eve. And I think it's really worth reading. We put some of her work here in the show notes. For those of you that are interested, if you don't have the book, it, it's so good. But there's one part in her article that she writes that I want to reference here. She talks about the Forgotten Books of Eden, and she says this, In one of the Forgotten Books of Eden, Adam and Eve are outside of Eden in a dark cave. Adam assumes that earth life will be lived in blackness. Think about this. If you were Adam and Eve, and it's your first experience being cast out of the Garden of Eden, and it's your first experience... With night. You've never experienced night before because the idea was that in the Garden of Eden it was this perpetual place of light. And so she's citing this text where Adam and Eve are in this cave and it's dark and he's never experienced it before and he thinks it's going to be dark forever. And she continues, she says, Adam is overwhelmed by the thought of this perpetual darkness. And so he cries out to the Lord. The Lord, however, gently explains to Adam that he is merely enduring what is called night. And In 12 hours, daylight will come. In this same passage, however, a very telling exchange occurs between the Lord and Adam. Adam says, For as long as we were in the garden, we neither saw nor even knew what darkness is. I was not hidden from Eve, neither was she hidden from me, until now that she cannot see me. And no darkness came upon us to separate us from each other. Now, since we came into this cave, darkness has come upon us and parted us asundered so that I do not see her and she does not see me. And then sister Lundquist makes her point. She says, is this what the fall in part is really about? Is this the pain of mortality that men and women cannot see each other? Are we failing to understand the very essence of the male and female relations the Lord intended? And I think that's the point. I really think that the Bible is sitting on a tradition of a lot of things that are not necessarily accurate. And so that being said, I understand verse 3 of Second Corinthians 11, and I understand how, it's, how it can be read. I also think it can be abused. And so I believe that the lens that we need to read Second Corinthians eleven three 3 through is the lens of the restoration of the gospel, specifically the teachings from the Pearl Great price, and especially Lehi and what he says in 2 Nephi 2. And so now, as we go towards the end of this chapter, chapter 11, he says in verse 16, Let no man think me a fool. Then he's going to say, I'm going to boast a little, or I'm going to brag a little bit about what I've done. And then he says in verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. So once again, he's referring to his detractors and he's trying to say, hey, they're saying that they are these things. Well, so am I. Are they the ministers of Christ? I am more. And so then at the end of chapter 11, Paul is emphasizing his greatness as a witness of Christ.
0: Now I think all that Mike has done is essential to understand what I would consider the gold of this week's Come, Follow Me. End of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12 is worth a long discussion with your family or in your class or even as you ponder this week. I think it is the culminating question we all have to ask. So understand that Paul's authority has been questioned, Because one reason is he doesn't speak very well, and therefore, how can he be a minister of Christ because he's not a good speaker? And I think another argument that must have been made, and I wonder if that's why Paul is bringing this up so that he can teach the correct doctrine, but one argument that seems to have been made is he can't be very special because he's suffered, because he's been beaten up. Now, I would suggest every one of us have deep inside of us this idea that once you choose God, once you commit to a life of righteousness, that you're somehow going to be exempt from this mortal experience, that pain will somehow be lifted from your life, that choosing God means bad things aren't going to happen to you anymore. Don't we all instinctively believe that? Isn't that kind of at the heart of all of our character that, hey, I'm a good person. Why are bad things happening to me? And yet, why are good things happening to bad people? Do you see, we have this belief inside of us that if bad things happen to you, it's evidence of God's disfavor. Why is it that Joseph Smith pounded his fist and said, where are you, God? Why are you letting this happen to me? Why is it that Peter rose up and said, carest thou not that we perish? Don't we all have this instinctive idea that, Paul, you can't be a minister of Christ. You can't have authority if you've suffered so much, if you've been beaten up, because pain is evidence of God's disfavor. But that is false doctrine. And we need to stop believing it, and we need to stop acting as if it's true. It is not.
1: Bryce, remember how they even say that to the Savior. If you were who you say you were, why would you be on the cross, right? It
0: is this inherent belief in all of us that when bad things happen, we're surprised because we think we should get a pass. And so Paul is going to address that. And he's going to do it, I think, beautifully. He's going to establish his authority without necessarily promoting himself. And I think the doctrine he's going to teach is... Choosing Christ opens up the visions of the eternities and allows you to feel and to know and to have those moments almost as if you're out of your body, out of this mortal experience where you do get to walk on the water above the storm. But let's not assume that that gives me a pass out of mortality because even the best of us are going to struggle and suffer. Let me precede all of this with this beautiful statement from C.S. Lewis that you've all heard me read before, but let me just paraphrase the one part I want to point out. When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected— He often feels that it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. Now, let me pause. This is Bryce again. Isn't that exactly our perception? That when I turn to Christ, I expect to be freed from some of the mortal experiences, as if the purpose of that mortal experience was simply to get me to turn to Christ. Now, let me continue with C.S. Lewis. When troubles come along, illnesses, money troubles new kinds of temptations. He is disappointed. These things, he feels, might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days. But why now? Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver, or more patient, or more loving than he ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. End of quote. You are not going to get a pass from mortality if you choose to follow Christ and be righteous. In fact, it may lead to some very intense physical mortal experiences to push that disciple of Christ even further. Now, I want you to see the contrast as Paul illustrates that very thing. On one side, Paul has very much participated in the mortal experience. Paul knows pain. He starts in chapter 11, verse 24, of the Jews... Five times received I 40 stripes, save one. And notice that God didn't spare him. God didn't come down and stop them. He allowed Paul to be beaten. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned. Rice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep, and the Lord didn't send some whale to carry him to the land. The Lord allowed Paul to have those mortal suffering experiences. He talks about being in journeys often in perils of water, perils of robbers, perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen. So yes, God does bless us and yes he does protect us but he doesn't free us of the mortal experience that we all need to have. And yet, look at what else is happening in chapter 12. Verse two, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Now, Paul is clearly talking about himself. It's that, how does he promote himself without promoting himself? He's playing on Greek culture that if you promote yourself, you lose credibility. And so he's speaking as if, he were some other person. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body, I cannot tell. Whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such an one was caught up to the third heaven. And then he says, I knew a man, such a man, who was caught up unto paradise. Now clearly Paul's talking about himself because in verse seven he says, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. So let me just pause before we get into the rest of that. Paul is saying he has not been spared the mortal experience of life. And yet his eyes have seen incredibly glorious truths. He has seen heaven. And paradise. He has seen Christ. Choosing Christ is going to bring those moments of joy and thrill and exhilaration. Following Christ will bring you a joy that you will never know otherwise. But it will not exempt you from the mortal experiences of life. And then he just, he just beautifully teaches that in verse seven. Lest I should be exalted. Lest I boast and brag and think myself something significant, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure." Now, we really have no idea what Paul's thorn in his flesh was, but it clearly seems to be a physical pain or disability that hurt him. And then he says in verse eight, for this thing, I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. I don't think Paul just asked three times that it be taken away. I think he's describing very intense periods of his life where he begged and pled with God that the thorn in the flesh be removed. Now, I truly believe that this is the Bible's version of Ether 1227. There is a doctrine we all need to understand. If men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. He said, I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. That is such a fundamental understanding to this mortal experience and the God that we worship. You have a thorn in your flesh all of us, your thorn in your flesh, your weakness is a gift from God. Now, I know that sounds so bizarre, but would you ponder that this week? That yes, Paul is an apostle, even if he's not the best speaker. And yes, Paul is an apostle, even if he's going through mortal experiences and is in pain. And Jeffrey R. Holland As wonderful an apostle he is, is not exempt from sickness and challenge and needs a cane. And Russell Nelson, the mighty prophet in the restoration of our day, needs to sit on a chair while he gives his talks today. Notice when Paul pled that the thorn be taken away. Verse 9, he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, I think this is Paul, not the Lord. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, Why? Because I have a weakness and turn to Christ and humble myself, then I am strong.
1: Bryce, I just want to add, the suffering that I've gone through has actually made me a better teacher because I can relate. I think if everything is going great in our life and we've never had any problems and somebody comes to us and they're having this problem, we might say something that's insensitive. We might just say, well, you know, whistle a tune we or, or sing a happy song. But I think we're a different teacher when we
0: say, you know what? I can relate. I know what you're talking about, right? I have not been exempted from the mortal experience. Most gladly, therefore, we need to take, not necessarily take pleasure in our infirmities. I don't think he's saying that, but we need to recognize that all of these pains, the pains in my life are not evidence that God doesn't love me. In fact, they are the opposite. They are evidence that God does love me and has given me a thorn in my flesh to buffet me, to cause me pain, so that... I turn to him and seek him, and then I will become strong. Oh, how I love this chapter. It is couched in a very difficult book. Second Corinthians is a challenging book because of what's going on in Corinth that Paul is addressing, but boy, do I love this idea that Paul was not exempt from mortality. Oh, how I bear my witness that God loves you. And perhaps an evidence of his love is your weakness, your pain, your sufferings, your challenges, so that he can then partner with you. And his grace is sufficient to strengthen your back to carry the weight.
1: I remember reading historically
0: in church history, some
1: people saying that Joseph Smith couldn't have been a prophet because he was cast into prison or even that he was killed in Carthage, some people said, well, there's the end of what they called Mormonism. There's the end of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because Joseph was killed. Clearly, he couldn't have been a prophet. And I thought, I don't know if that's necessarily the litmus test for a true witness, uh, if they've had a hard time or if they've been killed. I mean, history is replete with examples of individuals who were doing the right thing, and... They had a tough time, or they were killed, or they were persecuted. Paul's certainly one of them. In verse 12 of Second Corinthians 12, he says, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you, in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. I think the deeds he's referring to aren't just the miracles, but maybe it's making through the shipwreck. Maybe at the end of our life, when we see the movie and we see the movie of our life, and we see the time we survived cancer, or we lost a child, or we had a divorce, or we buried our parents, that we'll look back and we'll say, those are mighty deeds. I really see that as the end of chapter 11, as he's going through all these experiences where he was beaten with rods, and he was robbed, and he was in the ocean, and he was shipwrecked, and he had all these horrible things. I really see that as part of the mighty deeds that he's referring to. He also, I I just want to mention, he kind of blasts the Corinthian saints here, I'm going to go back to chapter 11 briefly, but just go back to chapter 11 and look at verse 19. It's a short verse, but there's a lot going on here. He says, for ye suffer fools gladly, seeing ye yourselves are wise. I think one of the problems for the saints in Corinth, and, and you know, we don't have the whole story, but I think one of the problems is that because of wealth, they can kind of look down on somebody that maybe doesn't appear wealthy. Maybe they don't meet their expectations. And so he says to them, you suffer fools gladly, seeing that you yourselves are wise. In other words, they are listening to the people that are skilled in rhetoric, that are teaching false stuff, and Paul is saying, hey, that's not the litmus test. Don't judge by how they look, don't judge by how they speak, but you have to listen to the Spirit. I think rather than look at the outward appearance, I think one of the main things that Paul is emphasizing in Second Corinthians is his witness as an apostle. And he gives lots of examples of why he's an apostle, and it isn't being great in speaking, but it does have to do with his visionary experiences. It does have to do with his position as an apostle and his witness of Jesus. I think those are the three things that he really does emphasize here. In the end of 12, it can be kind of confusing, but I want to read the verse in the King James right after his discussion about mighty deeds and his and his signs of being an apostle, that's in verse 12. In the next verse, in 2 Corinthians 12, he says this, For what is it wherein you were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. I remember the first time I read that, and I remember thinking, I'm struggling. I don't know what you're saying, Paul, and I didn't understand the context of what's going on. Remember that the context of this has to do with their expectations, and also it has to do with Paul's ability to go and preach and not require money of the saints in Corinth to back his ministry. That is the context. I'm going to read a different translation of verse 13, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about the context to see the bigger picture of what Paul's talking about. Have you been worse off than the other churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Now, that last part of verse 13, where he says, forgive me this wrong, we have to look at that as Paul using irony. What he's doing is he's calling out the rich members of the Corinthian saints, remember that the affluent members of the Corinthian community, they wanted an apostle who aligns with their expectations of a great teacher, of a great philosopher. They wanted a morally upright professional teacher according to their expectations. They want Paul to cease his labors and rely on their financial support, essentially becoming their dependent or their client. A big verse on this that you might want to go back and read is 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, I am not going to take your money to go teach. I just want to reference one verse so we can kind of see it in context, but you kind of got to read the chapter. But look what he says in verse 18. He says, what is my mistros or my reward then? My wages, really. Verily, when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. One of the things Paul is saying to the saints in Corinth is I'm not going to take your money. And then he goes on and he talks about some other things that he says where he says to the Jews, I'll be a Jew, and to those that are under the law, I'll I'll be like them, to those that are weak. I'll be weak, that I might by all means save some. And then he says, I do this for the gospel's sake. But to the saints in Corinth, and the main thing that they're having a hard time with is they want Paul to kind of be at their beck and call and to take their money. But Paul is tactfully avoiding falling into this trap This is part of the faction going on in Corinth. There's a small group, but they're influential, and they want to make sure that they can pay Paul so that they can have Paul say what they would have him say. And so instead, he chooses to accept support from other sources. Paul does get support but there's other sources, but it's not the saints in Corinth. For example, we'll see this when we get there. Paul tells the saints in Philippi, remember, that's up in Macedonia, he says, hey, you guys, I really appreciate the support that you've given me on my mission, and we think that they're financially contributing to his missionary service. So there's a different spirit with the saints in Philippi. Also, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, Paul does mention that he gets support from other churches while he is in Corinth, and he does say that he took financial assistance from them, these other churches, in order to serve the Corinthian church without charge, avoiding being a burden to them. If you look in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I robbed other churches taking wages of them. I would just say, uh, what he's saying here is he's saying, I've had other churches financially support me. Now there's other ways that Paul was able to support his mission. And one of them was by being involved in the trades. And he was a tent maker, at least according to Acts chapter 18, verse three. And so when he joined Aquila and Priscilla, and he was going out doing his trade, that craft, that techne, that craft that he did as a skilled tradesman probably helped pay for his missionary service. And we think there's a tone of the Corinthian saints, at least some of them, looking down their noses at Paul, because that's not what a self-respecting public speaker would do in Greek society. Why would they work with their hands? And there was some denigrating of working with your hands amongst the higher classes. And so there probably were some people in Corinth, of high class or high status that looked down on him because he didn't meet their expectations. And so with all of that going on, we think that the end of verse 13 is Paul is using a little bit of sarcasm.
0: Now, so did Samuel the Lamanite. He was a little bit more bold in the circumstance than maybe Paul is, and maybe a little bit more accusatory. But Mike, here is the Book of Mormon equivalent. Samuel the Lamanite stands up on the wall and says, If a prophet come among you and declare unto you the word of the Lord, which testifieth of your sins and your iniquities, you are angry with him and cast him out and seek all manner of ways to destroy him. Yea, you will say that he is a false prophet, that he is a sinner and of the devil, because he testifieth that your deeds are evil. But behold, if a man come among you and say, Do this, and there is no iniquity, do that, and ye shall not suffer. Yea, he will say, Walk after the pride of your own hearts. Yea, walk after the pride of your eyes, and do whatever your heart desireth. And if a man come among you and say this, ye will receive him and say that he is a prophet. Yea, ye will lift him up. And you will give unto him of your substance. See the reference to what Paul's talking about? You will give unto him of your gold and your silver, and you will clothe him with costly apparel. And because he speaketh flattering words unto you, and he saith that all is well, then you will not find fault with him. Oh, you wicked and ye perverse generation, ye hardened and ye stiff-necked people, how long will you suppose that the Lord will suffer you and that I love this rebuke? How long will ye suffer yourselves to be led by foolish and blind guides? This is where Paul would sarcastically say, I'm sorry, I'm not one of them. I'm sorry, I'm not a blind guide in that sense. He's totally being sarcastic about, I came here to save your souls, not win your approval, not be held up as a great person, I came here on an assignment from the Lord to correct some of your behavior. And if some of you, like Abinadi, are going to burn me at the stake because I came to save you, and you think Noah's your hero, unfortunately, you're going to find in the end that your best friend was Abinadi, not Noah. That's what Paul's trying to say here. And I think it can get lost because we're reading a text—
1: And I always refer to this when I talk to students and say, have you ever received a text from a friend or a loved one and you just missed it because you missed the tone? Yeah. Now, there's a couple more verses that are tricky here, and they have to do once again with the Jerusalem donation. And those are verses 16 through 18 of chapter 12. I'm just going to read a different translation and then kind of break it down briefly. Verse 16 to 18 read, let it be assumed that I did not burden you. Nevertheless, you say, you guys in Corinth, since I was crafty, I took you in by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves with the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? You see, what's going on here is the same people who criticized Paul for not accepting their support so that their faith could appear more respectable to their social peers. Hey, Paul, take our money. These same people apparently accept his opponent's arguments against his offering for the poor. So there was another faction in Corinth that was basically saying, hey, we don't want to give money to the saints in Jerusalem. And so Paul, writing his letter and putting this in here so close to the end of his argument, his request for the funds for the poor may have been at the center of his opponent's accusations against him. On one hand, he's saying, hey, I don't want your support, but I do want your support for the Jerusalem saints. And so the people that want to give him money are mad because he won't take it. And the people who don't want to give money to the saints in Jerusalem are mad because he's asking for money. And so either way, Paul can't win. I mean, that's basically the gist of verses 16 through 18. And just without getting too specific, I can't tell you how many times I hear people talk about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when it comes to money matters. And the bottom line is, you can never make people happy when it comes to matters with money. It's just,
0: it's so sticky, And it's a real challenge today. If the church has a lot of money, there will people say, well, I, you have too much money. I'm not going to pay my tithing. You shouldn't have that much money. But imagine if the church had no money. The same critics would say, well, what kind of church are you that you don't have any money? You're not very good with money, so why should I give you mine? And the idea is, where is the perfect balance that everyone's going to be happy, and it doesn't exist? And so Paul's kind of dealing in that same water, is when it comes to faith and money, no matter what position you're in, there's going to be someone who is angry and upset. It's a real pickle. Now, that leads us to the last chapter of this week's Come, Follow Me, which is 2 Corinthians 13, and it's kind of the culmination of a letter of quite a few of rebukes, and I love how Paul ends it. In verse 5 of chapter 13, he says, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. I think he's playing on that back in the on the day of Pentecost when they were pricked in their hearts and said, what shall we do? There's two ways to respond to stern counsel from a church leader. Paul has been very stern, and there's two ways to respond. First Nephi 16.3, The guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. Or we could stand up like the saints on the day of Pentecost and say, Men and brethren, what shall we do? It's that story of Brigham Young where Joseph Smith rebuked him in front of a large congregation for something that Brigham had not done. And Brigham's response was simply, Joseph, what would you have me do? Paul is closing out his epistle with appeal to all of us. When rebuke is warranted and we needed to be spoken to sternly, will you receive it humbly Will you examine yourselves? Are you in the faith or not? Is there any truth to this? Do I need to improve? Do I need to make some changes? Or are you just going to be offended, not hear it, and turn away from the source? I think this is a beautiful way to end an epistle where he's kind of been stern. Examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? Are you with us? We're all in this together. We are all striving to get to the same destination. Just like we need to be humble with our weakness, we need to be humble with correction. When someone says, you're, you need to make some corrections, you need to make some changes, you're doing something wrong, we should be just as humble as we are to the thorn in our flesh. If the thorn in my flesh was given to me to drive me to Christ, then I need to understand that correction from a leader is designed to drive me to Christ, not away from him. And that's how Paul appropriately ends his second epistle to the Corinthians. And with that, we will see you next week when
1: we cover Galatians.